Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Last year was a busy one for the Office of Personnel Management. The agency manages to push out plenty of proposed regulations aimed to reform federal hiring and meet workforce challenges. But there's more to come. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me for a look ahead to 2024. And Drew, the OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, has had a busy year. I think one reason they're getting so many things done is they've had continuity of leadership. I think Kieran Ahuja has been there, what, going on to three years now. I don't think any OPM director has been there that long in as many years as I can remember. So that's why the Schedule F, which seems to be dead and buried, but does it stick its bony claw up through the gravesite to dig its way back out? No, that's that's one that never really seems to go away, Tom, the topic of Schedule F. And just one quick thing before we get to that. Kieran Ahuja is the longest serving OPM director since 2015. So that is very significant. And I think that, as you said, is part of the reason that OPM is able to do a lot of the reforms, proposed regulations, guidance that they have been really churning out over the past year or so. But when it comes to Schedule F, this remains a topic, I think, because even though that executive order was revoked at the beginning of the Biden administration, You still have a lot of federal employees and organizations concerned about its possible return. And on the other hand, you have some people who were in support of Schedule F and the idea behind it, saying that they would likely plan to bring it back in a different administration if that were to happen. We're going into an election year, so I think things are a little bit up in the air there. But in 2023, you had OPM trying to protect federal employees, workforce protections through proposed regulations. And the idea there was to just confirm that these employees do have protections against being fired at will or made at will employees or being moved into a new classification. So they didn't really explicitly say it, but it was definitely related to this idea of Schedule F possibly coming back in the future. And getting rid of people is one thing. Hiring them is another. And OPM has struggled for years. The government has struggled for years on hiring reform. Lots of authorities, lots of temporary ways to get around the standard way of hiring people. So they've made some progress. What are they going to push on ahead, do you think, for hiring reform? Well, one thing that I will definitely be watching over the next year is the possible enactment of the Chance to Compete Act. This is a bill that passed in really huge numbers in the House, and there is a Senate version, although it hasn't gotten a lot of action taken on it yet. But that bill really encompasses a lot of the changes that OPM is trying to make. So it talks about skills-based hiring. That means moving away from focusing on job candidates education and focus on their hands-on skills instead. They also talk about the use of subject matter experts in the hiring process, so bringing in people who understand the job on a day-to-day basis and help them pick the candidates or assess the candidates, moving to technical assessments rather than self-assessments to really look at candidates' skills and not just have them rank themselves, and then also sharing certificates. So this idea of having a lot of agencies hiring for certain positions off of one job announcement. Those are all different things that OPM has talked about, has encouraged agencies to do. A lot of these things have also transcended administrations. The Trump administration talked a lot also about skills-based hiring, for example. So I think if we see this bill move forward, that would really push agencies to take on a lot of those reforms more rapidly, more dramatically than what we're seeing right now. Right. It's almost as if they're going to back into civil service reform without actually reforming civil 
service, but by the time they cut and trim and add and change all the details, it's going to look very different, I think, in a couple of years than it does now. Pay rising 5.2% depending on your locality. This year, another paycheck round till people see that difference, but that's about it for pay, it looks like, in 2024. For now, that is the one thing that is definitely confirmed. And then you also have the four new locality pay areas where those federal employees working in certain areas across the country are going to be getting higher raises than they would have otherwise. One thing to keep in mind or just to track into 2024 is this continued idea of pay compression. This is something that affects senior level feds in the senior executive service and on the general schedule because there's some legal caps on the way that they're paid. A lot of them I believe at least several thousand of them don't get pay raises or get reduced pay raises each year. The Biden administration has said that they are planning to issue a pay, a proposal to address pay compression and to try to fix it. We haven't yet seen that, but it's something where I think you're getting a lot of uh, advocates and federal pay experts hoping for that to come through sometime in the next year. Well, the only way you can relieve pay compression is either to raise the ceiling or to stop the raises coming up from below. And that's not going to happen. So the only thing they can really do, and it's probably not great politically to request that, but is to raise the ceiling. That'll take congressional approval, I think. Yeah, there is actually a bill on pay compression that Eleanor Holmes Norton introduced uh, just over the last, sometimes during the last year. I don't think it has a lot of bipartisan support at this point, but uh, yeah, that is something that would likely have to go through Congress But the Biden administration may make a legislative proposal in that regard. So, again, it's just going to have to, you know, we'll see how it plays out over the next year. Any other legislation you feel is worth watching besides that one on anything connected with federal employment, federal hiring, federal pay? There's there would be a lot to cover, Tom. I think that one that a lot of people will be paying attention to is the Social Security Fairness Act. This is one that would repeal two provisions of Social Security that reduce or eliminate uh, those benefits for certain federal retirees. This bill has been around for a very long time, trying to repeal these provisions, the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. Uh, It's gained a lot of support over the last year. It currently has 300 co-sponsors in the House, 49 in the Senate, and that's much farther along than it was last Congress already. So I think you're seeing a lot of traction building for this bill, and you're seeing a lot of organizations. The um, NARF, for example, is a really strong advocate of uh, passing this legislation, and I think you're going to see a a much bigger push on this over the next year as well. Well, you know, the cost of it is supposed to be something like $148 demand over time on the Social Security Trust Fund, which is not doing real well. So there is some opposition to it, and there's also, I think, people are thinking, well, there was a reason those were there, because the people earned income that that they're getting a pension on that was not subject to the Social Security tax. And so the offset was because they're getting retirement benefits on that income. So I think probably still some debate there. The other issue is that if you're talking about SERS system retirees, that's a dwindling number. There's only a couple of hundred thousand of them left versus several million FERS people that get Social Security. So the longer they wait, the the less urgent the whole thing becomes. There'll be nobody left to pay it to. Right. Yeah, this is one that just affects SERS retirees, the older retirement system. And you're right that there, you know, there isn't complete um, support for this bill. There is some uh, opposition to it. And you had Congress back in the 80s who was saying, okay, 
let's find a way to balance the scales a little bit. That's why you have these provisions in the first place. Um, but, you know, I think it, it just depends on which way you cut it to see whether you're for or against that issue. I think if you're a SERS retiree, of course, you're going to want that. And I don't know what's going to happen this year, but I think you're still going to see a, a pretty big push for that. Well, the year is young. There's lots of coverage ahead. We'll look forward to uh, working with you as we keep all of these things in front of our readers. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out all of her stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts. 
uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.